We are, as I say, together for the gospel. We are Baptist and Bible Church, Charismatic and Presbyterian, and lots of others as well are here. T4G has been arguably one of the most successful pastors' conferences in the United States. In its first 10 years, attendance more than tripled from 2,800 to 10,000, then was on track to top 13,000 in 2020 before COVID forced everything online. I knew when we were planning this that Al would not get out of his suit. And CJ wouldn't put one on. So... Lig and I, being the kind of nice guys in the group, decided that we would kind of do the middling thing. So I'm kind of tending to CJ and Lig's kind of tending to Al. So we're not together on what to wear. We're also not together on what pulpit to use. At least one of our speakers probably feels that I'm in sin standing in this pulpit right now. Um, You'll get to figure out who that is. We are also not together for the music. We are so not together for the music (laughs) that we almost did not have any music. I am serious. The conference drew its share of controversies and opposition, but clearly something was working. If you've been or talked to someone who has, you'll hear about the messages, the music, and the books. And you'll hear about the friendships and connections forged among ministers. So it surprised just about everyone when two of the founders, Mark Dever and Ligon Duncan, announced a few weeks ago that the 2022 conference would be the last one. Meanwhile, many of us in evangelicalism over here in America tend to say, you know, when we introduce somebody, there's the Apostle Paul and Martin Luther and Spurgeon and our speaker tonight. I'm Sarah Zylstra, senior writer for the Gospel Coalition. My job is to find and report on stories of where God is at work in the world. Usually, that means I'm talking to people who have seen the Spirit work in miraculous ways, doing something new or exciting. But in this case, T4G is ending. Usually, a termination this abrupt means there's been a moral failure or a financial scandal or a massive decline in interest. In order to figure this one out, we'll have to go back to the beginning. Sarah, I absolutely remember where I was when I first met Mark Dever. I first actually met Mark Dever on the phone. Ligon Duncan is the chancellor and CEO of the whole web of Reformed Theological Seminaries. But back in 1987, he was 26 years old and just beginning his PhD in Scotland at the University of Edinburgh. Ligon had a friend named Randall who was working on his graduate degree five hours south by train in Cambridge. Randall's church was without a pastor, and Randall asked if Ligon wanted to take the train down to fill the pulpit for a Sunday. Ligon said, sure. While I was there, he said, look, the the guy you need most to meet in Cambridge is Mark Dever. Uh, He said, he is the Southern Baptist you. You've got, you've just got to meet this guy. And so Randall was saying the same thing to his classmate, Mark Dever. He was so sure they'd like each other that he asked Mark to give Ligon a call. Now, odds are you haven't talked to Mark Dever on the phone. So let me tell you, he's not the guy you call to pass some time while you're driving through Kansas. And normally I'm super brief on the phone. If I go over 40 seconds, I mean, that's a big deal. I just, I like to get in, get out, I'm done. And, um... So I called Ligon that day, and we must have talked for an hour or two on the phone. 
it was just it was great. And and uh, it was a lot a lot of things. One, the, obviously, the warmth of of Mark's personality and 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 Mark's uh, love I'm really for warm, Lord. Sarah. In case you can't tell, very very warm. <laughs> Yeah, his his intelligence, the range of interests that he had, and I loved um, I loved his areas of, of theological uh, expertise. That I, I that the things that he was working on, I was interested in. I was a novice in a lot of those things, but I was interested in those things. And I knew. Well, and he was also practice. interested that, that a Baptist would be interested in these things because well, the Southern Baptists he had known were not like this. Oh, oh well, let me, let me tell you. I mean, that that was that was definitely one of the things, Sarah. Um, Mark was the first Southern Baptist that I had ever met that understood Baptist politics. Oh, and Ligon was one of the first Presbyterians I ever met who understood <laughs> the gospel. I mean, he was saved. It was awesome. He was Presbyterian and a Christian. It was a great combo. Really made him stand out. As you can see, Randall was right. Mark and Ligon hit it off right away. They were two Southern boys with large personalities. They both loved history and theology. For the next three years, while they worked on their degrees, they got together as much as they could. Anytime the church in Cambridge asked Ligon to preach, he did. The two went on trips together all over the UK, exploring British history, Scottish history, and church history. They geeked out together over stuff like the Canterbury Tales. Picture a 20-something Mark Dever sleeping on the floor of Lig Duncan's university dorm room. I'm spending a lot of time here on this friendship because I want you to know it was real. A lot of times we think of guys like John Piper and Tim Keller or Kevin DeYoung and Matt Chandler being friends, but sort of superficially. We know they know each other professionally. They chat in green rooms behind stages or they put their names on the same causes. And a lot of times that's true. Even if you respect somebody and agree with them, that doesn't always mean you want to split a BFF necklace with them. But this friendship with Lig and Mark was a sleep on your floor, tease you about being four months older, dedicate books to each other kind of a friendship. It was legit. Mark had another legit friend that he thought Ligon would like. His name was Al Moeller, and they'd met a few years earlier when both were at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Al and I just got on well. He... I tended to stay up late. He tended to stay up later. He would call me like one in the morning sometime. We'd talk. We might meet up at White Castle at the time and like at you know, two in the morning and talk for an hour about things. Al later called me. They had a lot to talk about in 1986 and 1987. Their denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, was having an identity crisis. Ten years before, a survey at their seminary showed that 87% of first-year students believed Jesus was the divine Son of God. Among third-year students, that number dropped 25 points to 62%. In other words, you were more likely to keep your faith if you didn't go to Southern Seminary. It wasn't hard to see where the SBC would end up. The path toward liberal theology had already been blazed by other mainline denominations. But the Southern Baptists wouldn't end up there. Pastors were already working to wrench it back toward biblical orthodoxy. Al would play a huge part in that. While Mark and Ligon were working on PhDs in the UK, 33-year-old Al got himself elected as president of Southern. 
And so Luther Whitlock, who was the president of Reformed Theological Seminary, wanted to encourage Al because he knew what Al was up against uh, in that setting and invited Al to be the speaker at the RTS All-Faculty Retreat in Florida. And I was designated as Al's driver. You know, so I picked him up from the airport and drove him to the thing. And so we had a we had a great time uh, to, together then. And then, and then Al... Mark met a reformed, charismatic pastor named C.J. Mahaney around the same time. Both were in the D.C. area and introduced him to the other two. All four guys got along surprisingly well for all their differences on serious issues like baptism or spiritual gifts. These are guys that really cared about the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, they, They really, really cared about teaching sound theology. There was a real concern for a a deep, uh, well-biblically-grounded personal uh, piety and Christian experience. There's a very evident joy and humility in the lives of everybody. I'd never, I'd never met any, I'd never met people like that in my life. And, um, and so, yeah, that was a unique thing. And we had started getting together and we would, we would meet in Louisville and, um, and we'd stay, stay there on campus and, and spend time uh, at, at Al's house down in the, in the sort of the basement library that he has and talk till all hours of the night about everything under the sun. And we, and we realized that, uh, you know, in some ways we were sort of, we were, we were an unlikely friendship. Um, you know, a, a Baptist seminary professor, a local church Baptist pastor, a Presbyterian seminary professor, and then CJ, you know, who, you know, at one time would have been an apostle and, you know, and uh, those sorts of things in those circles. And, uh, and, and we realized we had, that we had been personally encouraged in our walk of faith by our friendship with one another and we they started thinking man we know a lot of local church pastors who would really be encouraged by a friendship like this by now all four were speaking regularly at christian conferences and then hanging out afterward to talk about them uh as al i think you first suggested we could just get together and have our own where we preach and then sit around and talk about them afterwards that's what we did remember this was back in 2005 when everyone was talking about the emerging church Nobody had even publicly identified the Reformed resurgence. TGC was just a small, nameless pastor's colloquium that had grown out of a restaurant conversation between Don Carson and Tim Keller. Keller hadn't written The Reason for God yet, and Colin Hansen hadn't named the whole thing Young, Restless, and Reformed. Mark and I both thought nobody will want to come to this. Now, Al said, no, this will be big. Because Al had been out there, and he he already sensed building what Colin Hansen would later call, you know, the, the Young, Restless, Reform movement or the Calvinistic resurgence or whatever label. He already sensed that happening out there amongst young Christians. And, of course, that it definitely broke surface in the people that were coming to T4G in those next years. But uh, we, you know, Mark and I didn't think much would come of it. And, uh, you know, I I thought, yeah, we could all meet in a phone booth out back and uh, do our conference. Of course, they couldn't really meet in a phone booth. So they reserved the Galt House Hotel in Louisville, which could seat 2,400. They invited their favorite Reformed preachers, John Piper and John MacArthur, and to their delight, R.C. Sproul invited himself. 
And then, since nobody was on social media yet, they put print advertisements in World Magazine and Christianity Today. The four friends had been around enough conferences to have opinions on how they wanted to do things. They knew they wanted to focus on pastors. After all, the whole point was to encourage friendships in what can be a lonely profession. They knew they wanted to be rock-solid on doctrine, and also serious about those secondary issues where they disagreed. And they knew they wanted to model those disagreements well with panel discussions among the speakers. They also wanted to stock pastors' libraries with excellent, free books. That first year, they gave out 14 titles. Attendees had never seen that at a conference before. And in the future, they would know to bring along an empty suitcase just for books. And they wanted to sing, not in the manner of a praise and worship concert, but in the manner of a Puritan hymn sing. The only accompaniment they wanted was a simple piano. Both Ligon and Mark had been in their school choirs, and they wanted to hear voices. Did we in our own strength of T4G conference went really well. The 2,400 seats sold out and another 400 were squeezed in. Matt Chandler was in the audience, as was David Platt, Kevin DeYoung, and Christianity Today editor Colin Hansen. I was surprised and I um, I was elated with the friendship. I mean, one of the things that happened, Sarah, is Mark would spend considerable time getting guys together at the conference. You know, he'd ask, hey, anybody here from Athens, Georgia? And, you know, seven guys would stand up and he'd say, do you guys know one another? And they'd go, no. He said, well, brothers, these people are people that think like you. They're ministering in Athens. You need to get to know one another. You need to pray together. You need to support one another. And so if Mark Dever were a character in a Marvel comic, he would be the human Velcro. He knows everybody. He is always sticking himself to new friendships. At T4G, he got to stick ministry leaders to each other. The attendees loved it. They loved the books. They loved the singing. They loved the preaching. And they really loved the relationships. In 2008, at the second T4G, they came back and they brought their friends. Around 5,000 gathered in Louisville's convention center. Two years later, 7,000 came. By 2012, T4G had moved to the Yum Center, home to Louisville's Cardinals basketball. By 2014, the conference was hitting 12,000 in attendance. Instead of asking people from Atlanta to stand up, T4G got creative. Once, attendees were brought into the main session state by state and asked to sit together, like at a national political party gathering. Once, those who came alone were asked to stand up so other guys could see who to include in their group. And sometimes, Dever organized gatherings during breaks or mealtimes for geographic regions. T4G's Canadian group was the largest gathering of Canadian evangelical pastors anywhere in the world. But here's the thing about friend groups. The bigger they get and the longer they last, the trickier the relationships. 
When Al and Ligon signed the Manhattan Declaration in 2010, which joined with the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholics to oppose abortion, support heterosexual marriage, and support religious liberty, R.C. Sproul objected to that extension of Christian unity. In 2014, C.J. Mahaney didn't appear on the T4G stage. A former youth pastor at his church had just been convicted of abusing three boys, and the speculation on how much C.J. knew and when was being debated in civil court cases. C.J. was back in 2016, then withdrew again in 2018. The speakers of T4G had to process their riffs privately to remain friends on stage. They were serious about it. Outside of the conference, they invited each other to speak at their own churches and conferences. Before each T4G, the speakers met for three days to talk and pray and work on their friendships. At T4G, they ate together, sat together, listened to each message together, and then talked about them together. Well, when everyone wanted to add a new speaker, it was a big deal because it was like injecting something new into that fairly tight fellowship. And so whether it's, you know, the Beatty or Kevin DeYoung or David Platt or uh, Matt Chandler, I mean, wh- whoever it's going to be, that's going to cause its own stresses and strains um, because, you know, Mark and Lig and Al and CJ are one thing, but then every circle you get further out, there are going to be more variables in how somebody processes somebody else's public ministry and what it means for them to be publicly associated with that person. So uh, pretty much every T4G was an act of God. I don't think people understand it takes a lot to stay together for the gospel. It's, it's one thing to be together for the gospel. It takes a lot to stay together for the gospel because no, no minister can predict what's going to happen in his congregation and no minister can predict what is going to happen in his denomination and no minister can predict what impact that's going to have on his relationship with other ministers. Look, as hard as it has been to go through some of the things that different members of the group have gone through in terms of controversies in their own background, I mean, that's real life, right? If you're going to be friends with other ministers, they're going to be involved in serious controversies and issues in local churches. Without CJ, the conference sort of became T3G, but it continued to grow. The attendees looked forward to seeing each other, to singing together, to hearing good sermons, and taking home good books. The Reformed resurgence was also expanding. The Gospel Coalition was on its way to becoming one of the largest Christian websites in the world, along with John Piper's Desiring God. Tim Keller published the best-selling The Reason for God and became a household name, at least in many Christian households. Crossway sold out its first printing of the ESV Study Bible, which was also the first study Bible to win a Book of the Year award from the Christian Publishers Association. Mark Driscoll founded, and then was replaced by Matt Chandler, at the Acts 29 Church Planting Network. Nine Marks and Ligonier were growing. In 2009, Time Magazine ran a cover story on the 10 ideas changing the world right now. The top three were work that is meaningful, 
the emptying out of the suburbs, and this new Calvinism. So this kind of thing is actually happening all around the world. That was very new to people in 2006. Now, in 2021, all sorts of other things have popped up since T4G. You know, you have a TGC that's that's doing a conference. You have, um, uh, you know, you have other organizations uh, that are that are that are bringing together folks that are committed to the doctrines of grace. So the, the conference landscape is dramatically different than it was in 2006. You know, there was no Keith and Kristen Getty uh, thing conferences going on in, uh, in 2006. But that's not the only thing that's different today. Since the first T4G, America has logged onto social media and started carrying around smartphones. The country began wrestling with the rise of mass shootings and police violence against black men. The economy boomed, then busted, then boomed again. We elected Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and Joe Biden. Just in the past year and a half, we've sheltered in place, taken masks on and off, and fought about vaccines. Political polarization is sharp and statistically measurable. The Reformed resurgence is splintering too. Sproul died in 2017. In 2019, Al, Ligon, and Mark declined to sign John MacArthur's statement on social justice. T4G's 2020 conference was missing John MacArthur, Matt Chandler, and Thabiti Anyabwile. In 2021, Al ran for Southern Baptist Convention president, but came in third as many of his allies supported other candidates. The gospel that held Reformed Christians together despite different views on baptism and speaking in tongues doesn't feel strong enough to hold through racial reconciliation and vaccine mandates. And then it's just a different climate. 2006 was a time of coming together. 2021 has has been a time of things coming apart. And uh, people that once walked together are not walking together. Uh, and groups that weren't once fellowshiped together are not fellowshipping together. And so it's a very, very different dynamic in 2021 than it was in 2006. A few weeks ago, Al told his friends, Lig and Mark, that he needed to step away from T4G. He hasn't spoken publicly about his decision, but he told Christianity Today, each of us faces questions of urgency and priority in life and ministry. At this stage in my life, I need to concentrate on helping the SBC and working on some important new priorities, including world opinions. They could have kept going without him. There are plenty of pastors to fill the stage. But T2G doesn't have the same ring to it, and so they made the decision to close down the conference. Uh, Yes, it's true that there are some partnerships that are harder or that just are not going to happen right now, but there are still a lot of partnerships that do happen and some that happen quietly where people realize, yeah, we may disagree on how to, you know, respond to this COVID mandate. You know, I may go around with it. I may go along with it. I may civilly disobey it. I may sue over it. But still, you know, that that does not affect the gospel. I think these are challenging times that the Lord is using, among other things, to help remind us how the gospel is supreme 
and help us in a Galatians way kind of clarify exactly what it is we have to hold in order to be following Christ. And in that sense, I think we, we trust the sort of adverse circumstances as his discipline of us and as intended for our good. When the band breaks up, you can get nostalgic. You can bet there will be a lot of reminiscing and throwbacks at the final conference planned for April 2022 in Louisville. Oh, Ligon's sermon uh, about Elijah uh, is definitely, I think, the sermon out of all of the messages given at T4G over the 10 or 20 years. I think uh, I hear more references to that message uh, that Ligon gave than, than to any of the other messages. I still remember Mark's opening introduction to the whole thing at the first T4G, where he talked about how we were not together and how we were together. And it was funny, but it was serious. And and I, I really think it captured, it was one of those moments where everybody there went, yeah, right. That's what's actually going on here. That was very important for me. There have been a lot of messages. David Platt's first message on missions, that was a very powerful message for me. Praying for Matt Chandler in the wake of his cancer was a uh, was something that I will not forget because we didn't know how long Matt was going to live. When John Piper stood up and said, um, I am amazed that I am still a Christian as the opening line of one of his sermons. And, and the emphasis was, what power does it take to keep you a Christian? And the answer was the same power that it took to raise Jesus Christ from the dead is necessary to keep you a Christian. And, uh, you know, so I, there, I, could, I could give you a hundred things like that that has ministered to me through the preaching of my brothers uh, there at T4G that, I mean, they'll just never leave my heart. T4G was a public symbol of the Reformed resurgence, and some have wondered if the final conference signals an end to the movement as a whole. After all, as Colin Hansen will tell you, the way you know something was a revival is that it eventually comes to an end. But Ligon and Mark, who work all over the world, aren't worried about that. I just got back from Brazil and the Fiel Conference, where thousands of people gather the same sort of way uh, Baptists and Presbyterians and Bible church guys and, and others from around uh, Brazil and you know one of the largest Catholic countries in the world with a massive Pentecostal presence and they're all about Reformed theology as well. So this kind of thing is actually happening all around the world. It's easy to see how the fruit of T4G will outlast the conference itself. Those free books have informed thousands of sermons already. The singing has shaped the way hundreds of congregations worship, and the friendships have opened up and strengthened all sorts of ministry opportunities. A lot of guys came to T4G, especially in the early years, feeling like, you know, there's nobody left for, but me, God. And they came away with the Lord saying, there are 7,000 who have not yet bowed the knee to Baal. And, uh, and, and, and that, I think that's important. After the very first T4G, I was standing in the airport in Louisville, getting ready to board uh, my flight to get back to Jackson, Mississippi. And there was an Episcopal priest from New Jersey who was in the uh, diocese where the uh, bishop was John Shelby Spong. And that Episcopal priest 
said, I came here this week having already written my resignation letter to put on the vestry docket for when I got back. And having been here for these three days, I've decided I'm going to go on and try and be faithful in ministry in my little parish. And I could tell that story over and over and over where we're, we're guys came at the end of their rope. And they went back saying, I'm going to go back and I'm going to, I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to do my ministry in my local church. And I, I hope that that legacy will linger long. We do need continuing encouragement. And thankfully, there are lots of places to look for that encouragement. But I think T4G continually encouraged people in the pastoral ministry that way. One more thing. Ligon and Mark don't see this ending as a funeral, like the death of the doctrines of grace or of God at work in Louisville. They see it more as a step forward into the next thing God is preparing. We, we can know as Christians that however bright something behind us was, what's ahead is even better. So that's just, I just, I don't have it in me to get discouraged about this conference stopping. Uh, because that doesn't erase what's happened, the good that's happened in it. And, you know, may God forgive that anything which is not good and, and, and wash that away. But use, use the good and, uh, and then bring on better. Sarah Zylstra. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recorded. It was written by me and edited by Josh Diaz. Our creative director is Stephen Morales and our editor-in-chief is Colin Hansen. Special thanks to T4G organizer Matt Schmucker.